Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Rice, and welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on a variety of topics of interest to you and your family. Today, we continue our health series with Dr. Andy Pasternak, a local primary care physician with Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Pasternak. How you doing, Sherry? It's good to be here, and I'm it is. looking forward to today's, today's topic. It's yes. going to be a Today we're going to talk about staying healthy, um, and specifically about women staying healthy. We're going to talk about regular checkups and screenings, and uh, what screenings women need. But before we get into that, Dr. Pasternak, because just a couple of days ago the CDC made the new ruling that vaccinated people could take off their masks, let's just take a couple of minutes to update people on that. That was a bit of a startle for me that they said that we could take our masks off. Was it for you? Uh, yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I actually uh, I actually had a bet with a physician colleague back in December or January. Um, I was kind of thinking that the mask mandate might go away by mid-April. Um, and I think I was I was overly optimistic in the fact that I thought that we would have uh, a higher percentage of our population vaccinated mm-hmm. uh, by mid-April. And so I, I was really hoping by mid-April, I was kind of doing the math and saying, oh, by mid-April, we'll have 70% of our, pa- our, our population vaccinated, and that's when we can lighten up on the mask mandates. Um, we're not quite there yet. Um, so I was a little surprised to see the CDC lighten up the, ma- the mandates, given uh, how we're doing with vaccination rates. Well, so people are confused. Uh, Vaccinated people, uh, the CDC says that we can take off our masks um, almost everywhere, both indoors and outdoors, except for a few crucial places such as uh, airlines and uh, different things like that. Uh, Unvaccinated people, they need to keep their mask on. And from what I'm seeing, it's on the honor basis. Um, And we know a few stores that have said you don't have to wear your mask. Do you think the honor basis is going to work? Uh, frankly, no. <laughs> I mean, and uh, and as someone who's vaccinated, um, you know, look, I think if everyone was being honest and the vaccinated people were wearing masks, that's where, I, you know, I would feel a little bit more confident. Um, but I, I, I do worry that a lot of unvaccinated people also are going to think that, well, I don't need to wear a mask. Right. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm kind of concerned about that. Um, you know, now if I'm playing devil's advocate to myself, um, you know, Florida and Texas have not, you know, they've kind of gotten rid of mask mandates a few, few over a month ago. And they're in general seeing a decrease in cases. And I've been reading some stuff that, you know, maybe we do have enough people vaccinated. Um, you know, uh, people who are vulnerable are still, it's not like people, nobody's wearing a mask in Texas and Florida. You still see people wearing masks. Um, you know, people are getting vaccinated and, and, you know, unfortunately the rates are going down there. Um, so, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Uh, you know, for me personally, I'm still, uh, uh, you know, as someone who's been vaccinated, um, I'm sort of playing it by ear of where we're where we're at, what kind yeah. of environment we're in. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, if I, I think if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a small area with a couple of other people who are vaccinated, then I'm not going to worry as much. Um, 
you know, uh, we're also in Reno where our cases are, are improving. Uh, we're mm-hmm. doing pretty well. Uh, I'm headed back to Michigan at the end of this week. And, you know, in Reno, I think our cases are around five per hundred thousand. Michigan is about 20 right now. Uh, so they have essentially four times as many cases. And we're going to be in an indoor event with a bunch of people I don't know. My wife and I are still going to wear masks inside. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, you know, uh, I know we're vaccinated. I know we have some protection. Um, but uh, until I know the people around me are more fully vaccinated or, you know, if, if we're in a community where the cases are really, really low, that's when I'm going to start taking, taking my mask off personally. Um, and so one last question before we get on to women's screenings. Children under 12, though, um, that aren't getting vaccinated, they need to have their masks on in, in crowded places, indoors, and if they're not, if they're around people that haven't been vaccinated? Again, there's a lot of confusion on that one. And, and, and I, you know, I, I'm seeing some of the school districts do some things, some do some others. Um, you know, there are some thoughts that kids do are less likely to have severe COVID, are less likely to transmit it. Um, so, you know, and I know within Washoe County School District, there's a lot of debate going back and forth. You know, I, I would say for unvaccinated people, uh, for unvaccinated kids, I, I, I would agree with, our, you know, there's a lot of people like, if you're outdoors, uh, I think that's where you don't need to wear a mask. I think indoor for kids, that's where it's going to be just working with your, um, you know, and again, the rules are going to be different still. The CDC is sort of recommending one thing, but I think part of the confusion is, you know, California still has a mask mandate in place until mid, mid uh, June. Um, so they're, you know, even though the CDC is saying one thing, depending on what cases are doing in a particular community or a particular state, there still may be some mandates to wear masks. Mm. Well, it's interesting. It it seems like um, opening back up is far more complex than shutting down was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, shutting down is kind of easy. It's yeah. like, okay, don't do anything. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Stay you know, home and wear right. your mask. Yeah. Right. I mean, and we're finding this with trying to get, you know, there's some events that I'm trying to get up and running. And, you know, shutting things down is, I mean, we one of the events we were running with, we're, we're actually saying, like, Shutting things down is the easy solution. Yep. It's, uh, you know, the, the hard one is trying to figure out how to open things up and do it safely. Well, and that leads us into our topic of women's health because we know yep. that in the last 19 months of the pandemic uh, that many people, both men and women, have not kept up with their routine doctor visits and their routine screenings. Um, we know that. I, I think that's an absolute fact. And so today we're going to talk about what screenings women need. But first, let's talk about why screenings and exams are so important. Well, I'm, I, as you know, I'm a family practice physician. And one of the things that um, we really hang our hat on as family practice physicians and primary care physicians is the idea of prevention. Um, you know, we have a lot of diseases that, um, that we can kind of go through and say, geez, with a fairly simple screening test or screening tool or uh, exam of some sort, you know, we can pick up these diseases early, we can treat these diseases successfully, and we can prevent long-term complications of these diseases, we can prevent um, uh, people dying of these diseases through screening. So that's, that's really the idea behind screening is, you know, let's catch things early, 
let's catch things uh, at a point where we can do something about them as opposed to having something kind of linger and go on and on. Well, what is the difference between a screening and an exam? Well, I, I think the terms often get used uh, interchangeably. I mean, typically we'll have people come in for a physical exam, and that involves a number of screenings. Um, you know, so depending on, you know, is it a, a man, woman, um, you know, age, there's a number of then screening tests or screening tools um, that we will use for those particular folks. So I sort of think of the exam as sort of the, the overall uh, visit, and then within that you have a number of screening tests or, or screening tools. Well, what, well and, and the term well woman exam, uh, does, that, does that refer to something specific? Um, again, there's a, there's a lot of confusion with that one. Um, Again, what we sort of think of as a, a typical well woman exam is someone who comes in, they're not having any medical issues, uh, and that we go through this, this list of, you know, 10 or 15 different things that we need to address with the person um, to make sure that they're staying healthy. Now, in practicality, a lot of times what we find happens with well woman exams is someone schedules a well woman exam, and they, they go through their list of 10 or 50, or, you know, or maybe not 10 or 15, but four or five medical problems that they've been having going on. And we're seeing this a lot more with COVID. You know, people are like, yeah, I've been having this for a year, but I just didn't want to see my doctor. So sometimes doctors, um, if you schedule an exam, I tell people, talk to the staff about what you want to do. Um, you know, sometimes if you have four or five different medical issues uh, or, you know, symptoms or, or things that you need to address, um, the doctor may have to have you come back to do an exam at a different the, the preventative exam at a different time uh, depending on their time constraints and how much those those are issues but typically the idea behind a well woman exam is someone who's feeling healthy they're not having any issues um, and it's you know it's 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 just sort of time to kind of uh, go through these different things to make sure they're staying healthy well, let's let's talk about a woman, say between I don't know if I did these ages right, Dr. Pasnak, a woman between sixteen and twenty. Uh what exams and issues should be discussed and and do you recommend the HPV vaccine for um um adolescents? Yeah, so let's let's talk about what to do in that age group. So um there's a lot of different recommendations. Um one of the best sources that we always look at is there's something called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. It's a panel of experts, and they sit down and they kind of look at, um, you know, and you can go online to U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and you type in, um, you know, male, female, here's my age, and they sort of give you a list of things that that your uh, your physician or your provider should address when you come in for a for a annual physical or, or, or a well exam. And a lot of those things are based on what um, what diseases or what conditions we see in those age groups. So for 16 to 20, I mean, most 16 to 20 year olds are pretty healthy. Um, and the issues that we typically see with 16 to 20 years old, uh, you know, when I saw it in residency, we always said it's, it's the uh, sex, drug and rock and roll talk. I mean, the kind of things that we need to address there, a lot of times we're talking about, you know, are they becoming sexually active? If so, uh, are they in a monogamous relationship? Are they, do they have a need for birth control? Um, you know, uh, are they uh, uh, doing the right things to prevent STDs? 
Um, obviously, things like alcohol and drug use um, are some of the bigger issues that we worry about in that population. Um, so those are some of the things that we kind of try to go through with screening. Um, obviously, things like depression, uh, mental health issues are important. Um, if the kids are in school, you know, at that age, you know, it's typically high school, college students. Um, are they in school? How's school performance doing? Uh, how are they getting along with their peers? I think are some important things to kind of screen for. Um, in terms of vaccines, yeah, I think HPV is a no-brainer. Um, HPV is a, it's a sexually transmitted uh, virus. Um, there's a bunch of different little serotypes of it, but there's a couple that are particularly nasty, and they increase women's risk of cervical cancer. Um, and this is one of these things that's been absolutely amazing in my career. Um, when I started, we couldn't really, we, we knew of what HPV was. It was hard to test for. We didn't have a vaccine for it. Right. Um, now we can test for it much, much easier. And the vaccine, we have a vaccine that prevents cancer. I mean, it is absolutely astonishing to think, you know, people are like, I would do anything to prevent cancer. We have a vaccine that prevents cervical cancer in women. So, um, I think it's a great idea. Um, we start giving that shot uh, generally. Um, a lot of times we'll start giving that shot to, to girls who are 12 or 13 or boys who are 12 or 13. Um, but I think at any age, the HPV vaccine is a good idea. And then the other thing that we'll make sure is um, when, when people, when uh, 16 to 20 year olds come in is to make sure their other vaccines are up to date. So there's, a, there's now two types of meningitis vaccine. Uh, and we've actually seen a couple cases of meningitis uh, in Reno lately. So we have two vaccines that can help prevent meningitis. Making sure their tetanus is up to date uh, and making sure their other vaccines are up to date is also important. So let's move on to women in their 20s. They need a, an annual exam in your 20s? Yeah. So um, one of the things that, has, again, has changed uh, over my lifetime is um, we used to do pap smears. So a pap smear is a test in women. It looks for cervical cancer. Uh, that's the one where they, you know, they put you up in the stirrups on the table and, um, and they use a speculum to look at the cervix and, mm -hmm. and, and get some of the cells on the cervix. Um, it's, I don't know of any, it's not fun. It's, um, and so one of the things that's really changed is we used to start recommending uh, to do a pap smear um, on, on uh, women when they were sexually active. So a lot of times, you know, we might be doing pap smears on 16-year-old, 18-year-old. Old. One of the things that we found is we don't really need to do that anymore. That um, we can do pap smears. Basically, pap smears, we're going to start at age 21. Um, and then depending on, we have a couple different types of pap smears that we can do. Um, so depending on uh, the woman's sexual history, depending on their risk, um, we can now spread those pap smears out a little bit more. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. So, yeah, so one of the yeah, one of the cool things now is we can actually test for the HPV virus on a pap smear. So it used to be right. we would just look at yeah, we would just look at cells and if the cells were atypical, we would assume that they had an HPV infection. Um nowadays with some of the pap smears, we can do both look at the cells and look for evidence of this virus. Um and by looking for the virus, if we don't see the virus, sometimes we can spread out the uh, frequency of uh, how often we have to do pap smears. Now, do you suggest that women go to an OBGYN for that annual exam or to be done in the primary care office? Uh, I tell women, go to whoever you're comfortable. As a family physician, um, 
you know, we're trained to do pap smears. Uh, you know, a lot of family medicine offices will do them. Internal medicine offices will do them. You know, other women, um, especially if they've had a baby and they have a particularly good relationship uh, with their OBGYN, they'll have their OBGYN uh, do their pap smear. So it's really up to the woman. I mean, the, the actual pap smear itself can be done, uh, you know, it, it, it can be done by pretty much any primary care physician, OBGYN, family medicine, um, internal medicine. So We haven't gotten to the big 4-0 yet, so um, okay. they're in their 30s. So, yeah, 30s to 40s um, is, you know, again, uh, it's just kind of looking at overall health. Um, That's where we also start doing screening for things like blood pressure. Uh, We do see women in their 30s and 40s who have high blood pressure. Uh, We'll do screening for things like diabetes, especially in people who are overweight. Uh, We'll start looking at cholesterol levels. Uh, Cholesterol will actually start in their 20s. Uh, to make sure that there's no family, you know, no high cholesterol levels, things like that. Uh, and then at some point, especially in, in uh, women who are sexually active, uh, it's also good to do some screening for things like HIV. Um, there's some debate about, you know, how frequent that needs to be. But in general, doing an HIV test at some point um, is probably a good idea. And then, again, depending on people's sexual history, um, you know, that might need to be done on a regular basis. Well, um, let's talk about turning 40. That's a milestone for a lot of people. Of course, at my age, I'm in my 70s, 40 seems very young. But I remember turning 40. It didn't seem so young to me. Uh, From 40 to 50, what are the exams? What what is the age that a woman should start having a mammogram? So mammograms, there's, again, a lot of debate about that one. And I think some of that is based on uh, a particular woman's history. Um, if you look at the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, um, between 40 and 50, they don't find a lot of evidence to do uh, uh, mammography in that age group. Um, if you look at some of the other recommendations, and this is where it gets particularly confusing, if you look at some of the other recommendations, uh, things like the American Cancer Society, they interpret the data a little bit differently, and they actually do recommend women uh, between 40 and 50 start to get uh, mammograms. So, again, that's one where between 40 and 50, I usually advise women, go talk to your doctor. Some of it's going to be based on, you know, your particular risk factors, your particular family history. Uh, and between 40 and 50, that's where I think it's a good idea to kind of chat with them about, do you need a mammogram? Uh, you know, and if so, how frequently to do it in that age group. Now, between 40 and 50, of course, women, do they need an um, an annual exam? Um, so, again, I mean, you know, we used to have women come in every year for a pap smear. Um, that's kind of falling out of favor now. Again, depending on the type of pap smear, we might only have to do that every two years, three years, five years. Um, you know, I would say in general between 40 and 50, um, you know, I do think it's good to come in maybe every at a minimum every two or three years. And okay. then, if, you know, if your physician does find medical problems, if your blood pressure is high, if your cholesterol is high, um, you know, if there are other medical issues or if there's changes in your history, you know, it probably would be good to get in uh, every year. Um, so, I mean, I, I think in general it's good to get in every year. As a primary care physician, I kind of like to see my patients every year just to kind of check in, and it gives us a little bit more data. Um, I do realize people are busy. COVID put a damper in things. So 
I would say at a minimum, you know, you want to get into your primary care physician every two to three years in that age range. And what about routine dental exams? You know, I've um, I've read the correlation between good health and good dental health because there there truly is that connect the dots on that one, right? Yeah, and I and again, I think getting in for dental health. Uh, is absolutely critical. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Um, some of the studies of, you know, people with poor dental health have a higher risk of diabetes, higher risks of heart disease. Um, and there's some biologic plausibility of why that might happen. Uh, you know, if you have chronic tooth infections, that increases your risk of some issues. So, yeah, I think getting in to see a dentist on a regular basis uh, makes a lot of sense. And and what about eye exams, Dr. Pasternak? I... I um... I know that people get eye exams because they have glasses, but there's a, a lot more reasons to get a, an eye exam than just because of glasses, right? Yeah, I, I would say eye exams, you know, once you start hitting 50 to 60 is where sometimes I'll recommend to people to get in to see an eye, you know, to get in to see an eye doctor. Um, there's some other things like glaucoma. Um, so glaucoma is basically the pressure in the eye is higher than it's supposed to be. Um, and a lot of times with early glaucoma, people don't know that they have it. Really, the only way you can detect that, uh, it's kind of like checking someone's blood pressure. You know, sometimes uh, people will have vision issues due to glaucoma. Um, but a lot of times with glaucoma, uh, especially early, they may not have symptoms. You know, if people have early high blood pressure, they may not have symptoms. So I, with things like that, it is kind of good to get, I think, good to get that checked. Um, usually that's going to be more 50s, 60s to make sure that there's no issues. So it sounds like that by the time someone's 40, if they haven't had an exam that included a blood pressure check and maybe cholesterol, blood sugar, that they should have one uh, somewhere in their early 40s. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it is good to get exams. I mean, again, we're checking blood pressure, cholesterol in 20s and 30s, and I think it's important to, to be seeing your doctor then. Um, you know, but it definitely by age 40, uh, you know, 40 to 50 is where we really start to see an increase in a lot of the cr more chronic medical issues. And that's where I think it's, it's absolutely critical to get in. And let's, um, let's talk about that word menopause, premenopause, menopausal. If we're looking at 50 to 60 year olds, when do we start screening, um, for symptoms of menopause and also, uh, osteoporosis? Um, so, uh, good question. So, so menopause is essentially, uh, in women, uh, your ovaries have this monthly cycle, uh, where, uh, you know, they, they get a, they get a feedback from up in your pituitary gland and they re release these chemicals. And, and generally, you know, in late forties, early fifties, um, the ovaries kind of just essentially start to wear out and that's when women start to have menopausal symptoms. And what happens at that point is you see drop-offs in estrogen levels and progesterone levels. And so women will have the classic hot flashes uh, that they describe with menopause or they'll have irregular periods. So a lot of women, uh, we don't necessarily screen for that. Pretty much every woman knows that they're going to go through that. Yeah. Um, you know, if they're really having a lot of uh, symptoms with that, you know, we do recommend people, women come in and um, we have some different things that we can do to treat that. Um, you know, especially if they're having a lot of symptoms. Um, but it, again, it's generally, uh, we generally see that 
Um, and then you, yeah, it, it's sort of a, a marker of, Hey, you know, your, your ovaries are, are, are starting to get a little bit tired and, uh, we see the hormone levels drop off and, and you know, uh, and, and again, that's sort of when we start to see, um, you know, some of the, uh, there's a lot of other blood pressure, diabetes, as you get older, all, the risk of all those things go up. So we get a lot of women who come in around, uh, the time of their menopause because they're having symptoms. And then we kind of use that as an opportunity to make sure they're up to date on things like right. colon cancer screening and breast cancer screening and all that. And what about bone density? When is that exam so, for osteoporosis? Yeah, so bone density will start generally doing that at age 65. But again, that might be earlier depending on the person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we have someone who has a history of fractures, if we have someone uh, who has a family history of osteoporosis, or maybe they have problems with their thyroid or other, some other medical conditions, um, you know, uh, sometimes we will do uh, osteoporosis earlier than that, but generally, overall, that's going to be uh, 65 and we're going to start looking for that. Okay, and what about colon cancer? Because is state-of-the-art still to get a colonoscopy in your early 50s, or is it to get more of a, um, a fit test? So colonoscopy is one where we have a lot of options. Um, and colonoscopy, there's now some recommendations that we should be going down to age 45 mm. instead of 50 for colonoscopy. So, yeah, there's some newer guidelines coming out showing that, you know, we, we might get a little bit more benefit at age 45. And those haven't been uh, universally accepted by the insurance company, which is often, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that's the one who, if they hold the purse strings on the, the cost of the screening test. Um, but I think probably in the next few years, we'll start to see, uh, more of a push to go down to age 45 for, for colon cancer screening. And I tell people with colon cancer screening, we actually have a lot of different options for colon cancer screening. But here in northern Nevada, it essentially comes down to uh, probably one of three tests. Um, one is a colonoscopy, and that's the procedure where, you know, you talk to the gastroenterologist and you drink a bunch of stuff and you clean out your bowels and you go in and they sedate you and then they take a scope and they look through your colon. They look for polyps or precancerous lesions. Um, and it's a, it's, you know, it's a very, very good test. It's been shown to decrease your risk of, of dying of cancer. Um, you know, the downside to it is the bowel prep and, and uh, you know, you have to basically take a day off of work for sedation. Um, the upside to a colonoscopy is it's very good at picking up polyps, picking up precancerous lesions. Um, so in some instances, uh, you know, especially if I have someone with a family history of colon cancer, um, you know, it, it's kind of a good test to pick up those precancerous things. Um, the other two options are, are, are very similar. There's either what we call a fit test, and that's a test that can be done in your doctor's office, and that's to look, essentially look for blood in the stool. Um, and that's a, a very easy test to do. They send you home with a kit, you send it back, um, and they basically put a little chemical in there, they look for blood in the stool. And that is also a very, very efficient way to, to look for colon cancer. And we have good studies showing that uh, if you do fit test, the key with fit testing is you have to do it on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. If you do a colonoscopy, you're good for 10 years. Um, so the fit testing has to be done regularly. Um, and in a lot of places, uh, the, the VA hospital, uh, Kaiser, they actually all recommend going, most, a lot of the bigger organizations say, let's do fit testing first, and then we'll do a colonoscopy on someone um, you know, if they, if, they have, if they have a positive fit test. 
And then there's sort of an intermediate option. There's, there's a new test called a, a relatively new test called Colaguard, which essentially takes a fit test. And then they also do a bit of a DNA uh, analysis on the stool. Uh, and again, that's one um, you work with a company, they send you a kit in the mail, you send it back to them. Um, and then they do, and they do this and it's probably a little bit more, uh, it probably picks up a few more cancers than a fit test alone, but it also has a few more, uh, false positives than a fit test. So mm-hmm. again, it's a good test. Um, the, the, with the Colaguards, you can do that every two to three years as opposed to doing it every year and you get the advantage of this extra DNA analysis. So I tell, I, when patients come in and they ask me which one, I say, it's up to you. It's your decision. Right. Here are the, you know, the pluses and minuses of all three. I just want you to get one of these, essentially three tests done right. uh, to do colon cancer screening. So a lot of the tests that we've been talking about, Dr. Pasternak, it really depends on your family history um, with many of these tests. So your family history is really important to tell your physician so that the physician would know whether to do the test earlier than, say, the routine age to get the test. Is that true? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if I have a woman come in and, um, you know, her dad, uh, say, died of colon cancer in his, you know, mid to late 50s, um, we're going to, you know, that's that's a woman where I'm going to be like, hey, we got to do a colon, you know, we, you should really be getting a colon right. that, right. that That's probably a better test. Um, you know, if I have a woman who... Uh, there's some genetic things. Uh, there's a, a gene called the BRCA gene. Uh, and so sometimes we're, we're getting better uh, at screening women for this BRCA gene. And if they are positive for this BRCA gene, uh, then everything I've said you can kind of throw out because then we have to, if, if women are positive for this BRCA gene, and generally there's a family history of early cancers, uh, early breast cancer, early uh, colon cancer, um, that if they're positive for this BRCA gene, uh, then we're going to be doing much, much more surveillance because their risk of cancer is much higher. So let's talk about um, 60, 70, 80-year-old uh, women. Is part of the exam for a, a senior to check for cognitive issues such as dementia or Alzheimer's? And how, how do you test for that? Um, so those are kind of tough things to test for. Um, we, you know, we have some things, uh, you know, if people come in, we can run them through we call a mini mental status exam, or there's some other tools uh, to kind of look for memory. Um, you know, there is a distinction. I mean, as people get older, we do see a bit of a drop in memory. So sometimes it's important, you know, uh, to, to kind of realize there is sort of normal aging memory loss, and then there's full dementia. So a lot of times with there, uh, with memory issues, that's where all, uh, a lot of times we'll have a family member come in with uh, the, the older women and you know uh sometimes if the if the patient themselves doesn't remember they have a memory problem it's the family members that tip us off and we would do some additional testing there Mm -hmm. um other things other things in in that older age group i think it's you know we have sort of talked about depression screening alcohol i haven't mentioned tobacco but those are all still things when you're in your 60s 70s 80s um are really critical um i've seen you know women uh, who have not had any issues with alcohol or depression uh, start to get it in their 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, I think sometimes as primary care physicians, we're like, oh, this person hasn't had a problem for 50 or 60 years. You know, um, well, that doesn't mean it couldn't crop up. So I think it's still important to screen for things like that. 
And then another big one is, is looking at fall risk, um, you know, looking at mobility, uh, looking at strength. Um, and so, you know, there's some assessments that you can kind of do. And, you know, sometimes we'll just kind of eyeball it or we'll talk to the patient. Other times there's some, there's some more specific, you know, sit up or, or sort of sit and stand test that we'll do to kind of assess someone to see if they're at a fall risk. And and what about um, just normal memory issues? And, of course, I'm in my 70s and I'm asking. I see those commercials for Prevagen all the time, and they say that it can sharpen your memory and sharpen your brain. Do you think that that really works? Not really. Um, I mean, the <laughs> FDA, uh, a, couple, yeah, a couple of years ago, the FDA really got into it with Prevagen, um, and there was a there was a big, you know, hullabaloo and um, you know Prevagen. I think ultimately pointed. I mean, they did some studies and I think they looked at about 25 different measures. You know, they ended up saying, oh, out of these 25, we didn't see a difference. But there were three of them where there might have been a little bit of a difference mm-hmm. on people who who take Prevagen. So, yeah, <laughs> I you know I have patients who take it. Um, you know, do I really think it helps them that much? Not really. Well, all through this, these age groups, we started at, say, 16 and we're up to people in their 80s. Of course, um, behavioral health is another important piece of every time that someone goes to see their primary care physician, behavioral health is something that's sort of on the table throughout all age groups, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think sometimes uh, you know, I, I would say especially with things like depression, anxiety, uh, and, and alcohol use. I mean, those are things that people often feel that there's a stigma to. And, and, um, and you know, I, I don't want to say they're – and people who have those issues often feel stigmatized and don't want to talk about them. So I do think it's important um, to bring up those issues – uh, there's some screening tools that we can use um, to kind of bring up those issues um, and, and to kind of, you know, make sure that we're not missing an underlying depression, anxiety. Um, and, you know, as a primary care physician, look, I've missed it, you know, and, and it's only when, you know, I, I'll see a woman and, you know, I'll get a call from a, a son or a daughter, you know, five days later, like, oh, why didn't, you know, your my mom didn't tell you that, you know, she's not sleeping and she's crying all the time. And so, you know, we miss it uh, in part because a lot of times patients don't want to talk about those things. Right, right. Um, you know, I, another thing that, that I, I, I is also absolutely critical that I have not mentioned is um, allowing a safe place for people to talk about domestic violence. Oh, um, and, again, that's a, that's a very difficult one. Um, you know, sometimes with women, uh, there can be some factors why they don't want to bring that up. Um, you know, uh, and it can be an incredibly tricky, tricky situation. So as a primary care doc, what we really try to do is put that information out there, you know, hey, this is a safe place to talk about these issues. Sometimes women feel ready to talk about those issues. Sometimes they, um, you know, uh, I've had women where I've known them for years and, you know, five, 10 years down the road, you find out they've been in a, a uh, situation where there's domestic violence going on, and it, it, that's a really tough one because sometimes they're not really they, they know it's not a good situation, but there are other life circumstances uh, where they're kind of stuck in that situation. Yeah. So, but I think you know the big thing is we really just you just want to have a safe place that if women are having issues with that, that they can talk about it. Well, and especially after a year of being so isolated 
as we have been with COVID. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think COVID, um, you know, especially uh, early on when we're, people were so locked down, um, you know, some of the, some of the reports of some of the, uh, uh, yeah, some of the, what was happening with, you know, domestic violence, family violence uh, was incredibly, incredibly depressing. Yeah. Anything else that you want to recommend um, for women that might be listening, Dr. Pasnek, other than the fact that if they've put off their screenings and their visits to their physician to uh, to get back on track? Yeah, I mean, I think just you know, I think it is really helpful to have a primary care physician, no matter what age you're at. Um, and you may go in, and it may be a brief visit, but it's really nice to have that relationship to have a friendly face that you can see. And if you start to have any medical problems, um, you know, the, the, the physician or the provider isn't starting from scratch, that they know some information about you um, and they can kind of jump on those issues a little bit quicker. So, you know, I, I know a lot of times people are busy. They have a lot of other things to do, but I think getting in for your preventative exams, especially now that we're seeing COVID go down, uh, it's critical to get these things done because we want to help prevent colon cancer and breast cancer and cervical cancer and all these other things that we've talked about. Yeah. True story. I've had my primary care physician for for many decades, and I really appreciate her. We have continued our health series with Dr. Andy Pasternak, a local primary care physician with Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine. Today we've been talking about women's health. Thank you, Dr. Pasternak. I believe that our next podcast will be on men's health. All right. Looking forward to it, as always. Thanks, Sherry. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please stay healthy and get regular checkups and screenings.